This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Toronto International Film Festival. Gumshoe Panel Excerpts Redux. And the Oklahoma Azathoth Monument. This episode is brought to you by Engine Publishing and Odyssey, the complete Game Master's Guide to Campaign Management. It's the fourth system-neutral book for GMs from any award winner, Engine Publishing. Written by award-winning authors Phil Vecchione and Walt Sikanowski, Odyssey is jam-packed with in-depth advice on starting, managing, and ending campaigns, although campaigns often just sort of end themselves. I guess Odyssey would help you do it when you want it to as opposed to just at random. Right. It doesn't need a chapter on ending your campaign because you've been hit by a meteor, because after that, you, you know, you have other worries, right. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but whether you're an old hand or new to game mastering, you'll find a wealth of tips and techniques you can put to immediate use in Odyssey. A guide to starting a new campaign from coming up with the initial concept, which can be as simple as listening to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, to running a smooth first session, which is slightly less simple. Uh, tips on structuring stories handling problem players, and making your campaign thrive. Advice on actively managing every element of your campaign, stories, characters, players, risk, and change, while avoiding the common pitfalls. Examples of how every aspect of campaign management looks when handled well or badly. <laughs> it's it's important to have other examples of how to handle a campaign badly, I guess. that's. Uh... <laughs> yes, we, we could all imagine the horror stories. Um, and also how to end campaigns on a high note, including what to avoid, for example, being hit by a meteor. We're giving CarTask listeners a special discount on Odyssey, $5 off in the engine publishing store using code CARTASK20. Good through November 2013 on enginepublishing.com. The clatter of sprockets, which is now digitally projected with the rest of the film, and the smell of popcorn, which will soon be digitally projected in the cinema of the future, tell us that we are in the cinema hut. And as is so often the case with the cinema hut in September, the cinema hut is located in the sprawling confines of the great city of Toronto. And Robin has just returned from his annual excursion deep into the heart of art with the Toronto International Film Festival, and as always, saw probably... 35 films that I want to see and a couple of films that I wouldn't see on a bet. <laughs> well, it, it helps that I'm telling you in advance which two not to yeah, see. Yeah, no, it's... It, it, well, actually, I'd see one of those on a bet, one of, one of your duds, but I suspect I still wouldn't enjoy it. Now, my sense is that there was a much bigger genre percentage of film in this TIFF as opposed to... Uh, usually you interleave the O cinema that uh, classy grown-up people in the pages of The New Yorker like with the good stuff. And so is it just that this TIFF was heavier on genre? Are all film festivals getting heavier on genre? Or is it just that TIFF is so ginormous that you could literally build a program of Westerns out of it, even if there was only 30? I think a little of one and a little of, of three. Uh, first of all, uh, we have seen over the last five, six years, a growth of genre cinema in general. And people who previously would be making more arty straight films are now making arty genre films and including some of the very favorite things that I saw this year. 
and you are seeing a greater recognition of the role of genre and cult cinema. Midnight Madness, uh, for example, has kept growing and growing. That's the one that's specifically for uh, horror films and fantasy and genre stuff. And it has to be really crazy, rollicking films in order for people who have arrived at 12 a.m. and are supposed to remain awake until the film unspools somewhere between 1.30 and 2. There's also a program called Vanguard, which has kind of been retooled to accommodate other uh, I think the term that the programmers use is elevated genre, which is, again, these may not be as impactful and crazy as the Midnight Madness films, but they're still more and more genre-oriented. And I think you're just seeing a general growth as the global culture becomes more of a nerd culture. You're seeing films pitched to that. This seemed like an especially strong year for that, though. And, of course, I, although I am interested in other kinds of art cinema and in the cinema of the developing world. And uh, often I would pick a bunch of documentaries. And this year, uh, none of them made the cut just because there were so many really intriguing genre films. And there are ones that I wound up missing due to a, a sad family event. And there were, you know, even more on the list there. So we're definitely seeing a festival that is recognizing the growth of genre cinema and a growth of genre cinema and a particularly great year for that where my very favorite things, two out of the three, wound up being uh, very arty takes on common genre tropes. Yeah, so I guess I, that sort of tracks with what my my guesstimate was, although obviously Chicago is always a couple of years behind. They just announced their uh, lineup for this year, and if you do not count the crime film as a genre, which you should, then... It is mostly uh, gay cowboys eating, eating pudding, as is the standard uh, film fest offering, although there's some uh, sense of place foreign stuff that is part of the reason that I do the international films anyway. But let's get to what you thought of as the best, and I guess we'll start with the two genre films that were the best of TIFF for you, if that's copacetic. Absolutely. It, it's hard for me to decide which I would rather see, a Jim Jarmusch vampire film or Scarlett Johansson as a succubus. Because they appeal to, you know, the, basically you take everything in my brain that that appeals to, there's no brain left. <laughs> well, fortunately, surely through the magic of differently timed film releases or perhaps even DVD releases, you will certainly be able to see both of these films. The first of them is Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer, who is best known, I guess, for Sexy Beast and also did birth that sort of weirdo neo-kubrickian film with nicole kidman and this is definitely more in the mode of that second one it's uh, very trippy it starts with a very clear tip of the hat to kubrick although it's not entirely kubrickian since the actors sometimes occupy uh, the entirety of the frame and aren't always just little <laughs> figures in a vast alien landscape. Since there are people in it, it's not Kubrickian. <laughs> uh, so basically, if you... Uh, the, the slightly unfair version, then, of to encapsulate this is, if Stanley Kubrick had directed Species, this would be it. <laughs> so Scarlett Johansson uh, plays an alien invader who is driving around Scotland in a truck, picking up men in order to harvest their skins. And it's... Not a sort of standard genre film in which, you know, you have a scene where a scientist explains what is going on and people talk about the plot to each other. It's very experiential. It's uh, very 
visually beautiful and eerie and you're and you're just sort of placed in this situation with her uh it is a film that is of equal interest to cahier de cinema and mr skin shall we say um <laughs> and uh there are images of de haute eau de basse <laughs> yes that are uh burned into my brain already and it was quite something to see one of the larger venues the princess of wales theater which is usually used to put on broadway scale shows put to use showing this film to an excited group of a gigantic group of people who knew that scarlett johansson was going to uh, be there and then having this incredible head trip of a movie walloped on them so it was uh, only tiff could get that many people together for a film this uh, crazy and beautiful and strange and i'm uh, definitely this is going to be something that i'm going to have to uh, watch again when it comes out on blu-ray now I, I know that at at Cannes people um, uh, applaud and boo and storm out and and gesture theatrically uh, in Gallic fashion. Uh, are Torontonians uh, more polite? And even if the film is wild and insane and trippy and something they thought they didn't think that they were getting into, do they sit there uh, politely or do they murmur among themselves? What's the Toronto response to getting a sexy skin-eating pig in a poke? There was certainly no visible or audible audio audience reaction against that. And I don't even really think there were many walkouts. I think people afterwards, they, there were some people sort of laughing about how baffled they were by it. Mm -hmm. But even I think the people who were baffled by it kind of liked the way it baffled them. I certainly have been in screenings over the years where people have walked out. You don't get the uh, booing, but sometimes people will walk out in, in hopefully a way that will snap their theater seat up noisily mm. as they go. Right. Now, the newer brand of theater seat doesn't do that. I remember one year being in a very large uh, venue and being at the back of the venue. It's a theater that no longer exists called the Uptown One, which started its career as a vaudeville house. And it was about, a, I think about a 1,000, 1,200 seat cinema. And I was there for Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, The Wife, <laughs> and Her Lover. And the programmer had described this as being like unto a bedroom farce. Now, uh, this is, for example, one reason never to trust that programmer, even if he happens to pick a good film. You know he may <laughs> completely misdescribe it. Uh, if you know the film, it's in fact incredibly disturbing. Uh, one of the uh, And a film I quite like. It's in a little band of Greenaway films that I uh, thought was interesting before he just started repeating himself less interestingly. But it's a super distressing film. And a lot of people had read the program description and were not expecting that. And so there were waves when Whenever something particularly brutal or horrible happened, you would actually see, you know, a wave of humanity getting up and uh, storming out of the cinema because they had been completely fooled. But certainly there are enough people who know what they're getting at TIFF and know that they might be getting something uh, crazy and weird and are seeking something uh, crazy and weird. So certainly for Under the Skin, there was no overtly hostile reaction to it. Oh, that's good. And obviously, Jonathan Glazer, like you say, is a really terrific uh, director. So hopefully, even something you don't expect, you know, you'll give it a couple of shots and then he'll uh, come through for it. Right. And there is that, you know, Scarlett Johansson. If you came there for Scarlett Johansson. There's plenty of that. There's plenty of that. She's in, you know, virtually every frame of the film. And, uh, uh, you know, people did stick with the ride, even if it wasn't uh, mm. what they were anticipating. Well, then um, let's go on to something that I'll bet was pretty much exactly what people were anticipating, assuming that the um, uh, 
description was even remotely close, which is to say, you know, I read this description, I think I've seen about three quarters of this film in my head already, the Jim Jarmusch vampire film, which doesn't mean I don't want to go see it again the way that Jim Jarmusch shows it, but is there a non-Jarmushy part, or is it exactly what we all think when we read those words? Yeah, the film is called Only Lovers Left Alive. It features Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston as ancient vampires who are married and reunite after a long absence. And in fact, it is extremely Jarmushian. If you like Jim Jarmusch, this is one that you will want to put on your shelf along with his favorite films, I wager. At least I certainly did. And it's not a horror movie. It's a beautiful, elegiac, funny, witty, atmospheric Meditation on the Decay of Culture, featuring William Hurt as Christopher Marlowe. And so if you've seen other Jarmusch films and know what his films are like and want to see him operating at a really high level while playing with the gothic symbolism of the vampire, uh, this is that movie. And it immediately rocketed to the top of my list of favorite Jarmusch films. Do you know, uh, in your third film, which is a, a girl rock film of uh, apparently stellar quality, both in girl and rock, do you, do you know if Lucas Moodyson has done something that other uh, people, I don't immediately recognize the name, but I'm not necessarily a au courant on my Swedish directors. Uh, Lucas Moodyson was first known for a film which played in North America under the title Show Me Love. It played the festival circuit under its original title, Fucking Amal, uh, where Amal is the small town that the, the uh, young girls live in, and uh, that's how they feel about their small town. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a second film called Together, about a uh, group of people living together in a commune in the early 70s in Sweden. And then after that, he took a turn making films that were increasingly unengratiating until people stopped going to his films. And this is kind of a, or not kind of, but very definitely a move back to those two early, more charming realist films. And so this, the reason that I really loved this film, it's basically about a group of young teenage girls who decide to, put together a punk band, even though it's the early 80s and punk is supposedly dead. And the thing that I really loved about it, the way that it successfully breaks the rules of storytelling in a really sublime way, is that it is never contrives to raise the stakes. It never introduces a level of fictional heightening that you would expect a film to go through if anyone gave it script notes, yet remains compelling and fun and inspiring throughout. And part of that is down to the performances of the three lead actresses. And part of it is just down to the reality of it, that nothing phony ever happens. Nothing ever occurs to make it a bigger story than it would otherwise be. It's a really delightful example of the slice of life film done brilliantly with great performances and great editing so that you're never caught with a moment of ordinary boredom the way so many slice of life films do it. And in fact, it's based on a, a graphic novel, which may sort of uh, suggest why it has that energy to it. But I just found it a really uh, fun, inspiring film and inspiring in the way that it could be honest and real throughout uh, without ever doing the phony things that any story editor would advise you to do. Cool. Uh, and in case we haven't mentioned the name of the film, it's We Are the Best, 
And I think, so it sounds like it's sort of um, the anti-reality bites then, really. I, I guess so, yeah. So moving a little bit further down into the merely uh, highly recommended, I see a ghost possession movie. I see a movie that I, I suspect I would have kicked up into uh, the best just on the basis of the genre. Um, is there anything that you uh, want to pick out of that category before I dive like a crazy person for The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears? So The Strange Colors of, of Your Body's Tears is a Belgian film that sort of reconfigures the imagery and mood and the specific soundtrack cuts of the Italian giallo films into a crazy dreamlike art film and so it's not a traditional narrative and also uh, thankfully unlike a lot of giallo it is uh, despite all of the horrible gruesome murders and the uh, undercurrent of sexuality not uh, misogynistic uh, <laughs> perhaps because it's uh, directed by a, uh, a team of directors one of whom is a woman and so it's a really crazy uh, another mind trip of a film. Yeah, this is this is one when I saw it. Sheila is a big Giallo fan, and so that was immediately something that, that popped out, not just because the notion of a Jorge Luis Borgesian Giallo is interesting, but also because it would be, you know, something for the whole family, really. Indeed. Um, my t top recommendation in the four-star category is Intruders, which is a, a Korean film that sort of starts off as a comedy of manners and then turns into one a completely different, uh, somewhat gruesome genre, and then uh, does something else, which I'm not telling you because telling you where it goes would ruin it, but it is something that I think uh, you can as a... Well, I'll just say that you can would be interested in it. I'm not even going to say uh, which which of your many interests it would appeal to. I would be interested in it because it is a South Korean film, and we have discussed previously in this space how tremendously good South Korea's film industry is. So that would immediately recommend it to me. Is uh, the film that about uh, ghost possession, Soul, uh, the Taiwanese film, is that a film after the tradition of Satyajit Ray's Devi, in which the ghost possession is a metaphor, or is it a film in which the ghost possession is a little more foregrounded as sort of part of the um, as as part of the goings on? Is is this it's a ghost movie, or is it a family movie with a ghost in it? I guess it is a sort of a weird journey through visuals and mood that recalls uh, Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. Mm -hmm. um, you are never sure whether the ghost possession is the result of any sort of supernatural force or is merely a psychological phenomenon, but it certainly has the eeriness and dreamlike quality that you would associate with a ghost film, although it is not, again, not a horror movie, but is instead a another meditative exploration of uh, mood and visuals. And then uh, when you say uh, Claire Denise is doing Get Carter, that obviously uh, attracts attention uh, by fans of either, really. And the Bastards sounds like it uh, pays off on both of those counts. Yes. Uh, if you know the films of Claire Denis, you know that she switches up her styles quite a bit from project to project, mm -hmm. but there is always a sort of a haunting uh, sense of mood that is really special, though you can't necessarily always put your finger on why this is so compelling as compared to, you know, a lesser director doing the exact same thing. And it is very much what it says on the box. It's uh, a very much in the mode and theme and uh, even 
plot development of uh, Get Carter, but in that uh, evocative, moody way of hers. And it has music by Tindersticks, as her films always do, and uh, therefore that's probably part of that uh, strange magic that she weaves. Neat. And I, I guess maybe we should sort of brush rapidly past <laughs> the thing that I think I would enjoy more for its mean-spiritedness than for anything else, this movie Cannibal, in which the um, uh, lonely audience protagonist figure who comes out of his shell is actually a cannibal, and therefore just as horrible and antisocial as anyone who would stalk an attractive young actress in real life is. Yes, and it is a, also a strangely beautiful, quiet film, given the horror of its subject matter, but it's a, if you at all have an interest in the serial killer genre, which I think uh, is largely played out, this definitely does give you a new and different take on that. And uh, it's also uh, beautifully shot and has this great sort of sense of nature, particularly snowy mountain retreat where he goes to take his victims. And the I think, again, another mood piece where the, the mood of that film is going to stick with you uh, for quite a while afterwards. And now in, in honor of the return of Feng Shui, uh, tell us what awesome stuff happens in Unbeatable by Dante Lam. Unbeatable is a uh, fight film. It's a classic fight picture, except the fighting, of course, as it is uh, these days, is mixed uh, martial arts rather than boxing. And it has an interesting twist in terms of who the protagonist is and winds up being. And just like a lot of really well done Asian melodramas these days has a great sense of color and style and character and his relation, the relationship, the main character is sort of a washed up former fighter who winds up uh, training this guy to join a sort of a free for all chained martial arts event. And he also strikes up this sort of surrogate family relationship with the people he's rooming with in Macau. This is a big commercial hit in China and or in the Chinese market and won a bunch of awards. And so if you're looking for a fight picture that does what fight pictures have done since the 1930s, but does it in a uh, really well-executed modern idiom. And there's also a couple of, for the screenwriters out there, a couple of really great examples of the uh, set-up element of pipe, remind you of the element of pipe, pay off the element of pipe mm. moment. So uh, there's, uh, you know, it's a really well-constructed script in a cinema, the Hong Kong cinema, that does not always bring that to the table. And I'm also noticing in our cannibal theme, Seems like sort of from dusk till dawn, only with cannibal witches instead of vampires. Is that a, a fair opener, or is there more going on even than that? And that would be enough for me as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, this is definitely a popcorn movie. Uh, this is Alex D'Iglesia, who did Action Mutante and Day of the Beast and uh, The Last Circus. It's his crazy, cartoony, over-the-top style from beginning to end. The opening heist sequence could be the end of some lesser director's movie, and it's full of fun and craziness. Carmen Mara of the Almodovar films plays the uh, lead witch, and it's just sort of crazy fun and gets my award for the best giant monster of the film festival oh, there we as go. well. And uh, so, a coveted award. Indeed, yes. Yeah. So that is a... Uh, Try that one, Claire Denis. Yeah, so that this one is just, you know, sheer, crazy, cartoony, 
fun. If you take its sexual politics too seriously, you um, might get offended by it. But it's so silly and cartoony that I right. don't think anyone will. Yeah, it'd be like getting mad at um, uh, Maleficent or something. Um, right. And then, and then, speaking of South Korea and its uh, terrific uh, job of making films, you you catch my attention when you compare Cold Eyes to the terrific Hong Kong film Eye in the Sky, which of course was produced by Johnny Toe in the mode of his work. And is there something more to Cold Eyes than awesome Korean version of Eye in the Sky? Is there even more in there? It is very much an awesome Korean version of Eye in the Sky, and it is a remake, and it shows you sort of the differences between those two national cinemas. Oh, cool. That right. Eye in the Sky is very much turns into a big Hong Kong action piece, and Cold Eyes remains cold and blue and thrilling in its own way, but very South Korean. Neat. So if you uh, like your compare and contrasts, uh, you want to check that out. Another film that we probably should quickly mention if you are interested in genre, I don't think I flagged it as being a having weird fantasy elements, but in fact it does. There's a film called R100 by who. Toshi Matsumoto. You might know him as the director of Big Man Japan, which was a parody of kaiju movies that came out a while back. And this is a story about a man who engages a service to periodically have dominatrixes attack him in his real life. <laughs> and uh, as you might suspect, things go a cropper with that plan. It's, it's and odd. You'd think that would be a perfect plan, that nothing could go wrong. Right. And uh, this is, again, one of these sort of chameleon-like films that seems to be one thing at the beginning, and it's something completely uh, different and completely over-the-top and crazy at the end. And uh, part of the over-the-topness is a weird introduction of a couple of uh, eye-popping fantasy elements. So that uh, is another film that you might want to Keep an eye out for if you are only interested in the world of genre. Um, another genre film that we caught was uh, Alexandra Aja's adaptation of Joe Hill's novel Horns with Daniel Radcliffe. And uh, I found it uh, entertaining and energetic, although like any adaptation of a novel with a murder mystery structure, it loses momentum whenever it flashes back to give you another scene from the original crime that is being investigated. But Aja is a, a really good director, so hopefully the the parts where things are moving are really going well. Yeah, and this is definitely a step up for him as well. And then uh, I guess the last one, because you mentioned Joe versus the Volcano as the comparison, this is the, that would be the thing that would make me want to go see a movie that has two Jesse Eisenbergs in it, when one <laughs> is usually just a little too much Jesse Eisenberg for me. Is there... Um, is, is the script like, uh, at, in, remotely as good as Joe versus the volcano, or is it just sort of methadone Joe versus the volcano for when your uh, DVD is on loan? It is not as overtly scripted as Joe versus volcano. I think the point of comparison is to the set design and the, uh, so Jesse Eisenberg plays this office drone in w what seems to be an alternate reality where the, uh, technology for photocopying machines involves a lot more dials and analog than it ever did here. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it's the set design right. of the original first act of Joe versus Volcano that I was thinking of with that reference. The thing I liked about this film, which is an adaptation of the Dostoevsky novella, is the way that it sort of harkens back to 80s indie cinema. And from the sort of use of... Uh, lighting to uh, color and shape otherwise drab inexpensive sets and the uh, almost sort of the acting rhythms that if it didn't have Jesse Eisenberg and Mia Wayaskowska in it, uh, 
it could easily be a film from the late 80s first surge of indie filmmaking. And uh, it's by uh, Richard Ayodi, who people may know from the IT crowd. Right, yeah. Um, I noticed that myself. And now uh, in the three-star or good category, I notice Johnny Toe is only good. Uh, is that uh, just because this is sort of a bagatelle that he tossed off in between masterpieces? Or is there a more fundamental uh, mere goodness to the film? Uh, Blind Detective is the name of the film. Blind Detective with uh, Andy Lau and Sammy Chang. And if you see a Johnny Toe this movie this year, go see Drug War. Right. This is an example of his big commercial style that he uses to make money for his production company in Hong Kong by having big hits. And so this is a big, broad comedy uh, with Andy Lau playing the titular blind detective and Sammy Chang sort of the hard-charging cop who wants to learn the secrets of deduction. But it's very much that very crazy, kooky, over-the-top Hong Kong sense of humor. And just sort of on that ground, although it's very well executed for what it is, it is not to be mistaken for one of what Johnny Toe himself calls his personal films. And now this one uh, sort of hits me where I live in a lot of ways. This movie, Trap Street, by Vivian Ku, the notion that there is um, sort of a Hitchcock uh, mystery about a girl who lives on a street that in theory is, I guess, is it like an actual trap street, something that's on a map but isn't real, or is it the other kind of trap street where it's, it's left It's real, off? but it's not allowed to be on the map. Ah, okay. And the, the reason this is in my uh, good category, not my recommended category, is it is shot in the naturalistic slice of life style, mm -hmm. and the early bit of it is uh, perhaps could use a little bit of trimming. It's not as, uh, it's not compelling. And every frame of this film is not compelling in the way that it has to be for me to give it four stars, but it's still very interesting. Uh, and it is very much a drama about accidentally falling into the attention of the surveillance state, uh, rather than the Hitchcockian version of that story that you could equally do. So it stays within the realm of, of reality and is presented in that more real mode. What that made me think of as I was looking at it is how much less or how different, I guess, the standard Hitchcock film is in a country or in a world where literally everyone might be conspiring against you, right? That that's a thing that happens to lots and lots of people. Uh, you know, it's something where you have the lady vanishes that could happen that probably does happen like 10 million times a year in china that the guys there and every all the neighbors are like nope nope no one ever lived here sorry gotta go right or, or more to the point in this case if you are the wrong man yeah uh you can't what do you do to uh to to prove your innocence mm -hmm. in a, a society where the authorities have no particular need or desire to prove anyone's innocence yeah no it's it, it, i mean just i think just for that reason watching the trap street and sort of using that to re-examine hitchcock for the era of uh, totalitarianism and omnipresent surveillance is like an interesting, I mean, just show it next to four or five other Hitchcock films and mess everybody's life up as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it, it is a good film and it is worth seeing, but I can't uh, give it the full four stars. Right. Well, you know, we don't, we don't ask you to lower your, uh, your, your exalted standards, Robin. That would, that would not be true to the podcast mission. And um, I'm, I'm sure that the zombie cheerleader film is only okay because of, the uh, the bad score, or perhaps the substandard lighting. What possibly could be wrong with a zombie cheerleader film called All Cheerleaders Die? Um, it's just a little slight, and it's uh... <laughs> oh, as opposed to the the serious zombie cheerleader genre, it's a disappointment. Um, it just doesn't turn it up to eleven. You know, right. it turns okay. it up to you know seven. 
And so if it's on Netflix and you uh, want, you know, it's not a, a bad film by any means, but it doesn't. Uh, and, and I think mostly just probably due to budgetary concerns, it doesn't, uh, you know, there's no one big sequence or moment that you can point to as the, the super me- memorable uh, thing for that. So it's a, you know, cool little example of uh, American indie horror film, but it's not going to blow your mind in any way. So so where would you put it on the sort of uh, adolescent horror uh, spectrum next to, say, Ginger Snaps or The Faculty or uh, Jennifer's Body? Where is it in that sort of space? I would put it, uh, Ginger Snaps of that list is clearly the, the superior film. And uh, this is uh, sort of more around the realm of... Uh, Jennifer's body with less resources. Okay. All right. So if you uh, want a low-budget Jennifer's body, which still sounds like a pretty good time to me, that would be the one. And then you're in your dud category, you actually, even though you just come right out and tell me this is a film I will literally hate watching, I would probably still go see it. It's called The Story of My Death, Spanish film by Albert Serra, who is not immediately familiar to me. But the notion that Casanova goes to hang out in Dracula's castle is just such a crazily good high concept that I would still go see it. I might, you know, bring a Red Bull and some beef jerky or something now that I know that it takes freaking forever and you have to bring your own adrenaline, but yeah. still. Strictly speaking, he hangs out in a village uh, that where Dracula can come down and visit. Um, <laughs> Albert Serra is definitely, he's from the visual art world mm-hmm. uh, and is interested in evoking the period and uh, thought of uh, the late enlightenment as everything is going to uh, turn to blood with the revolution. Mm-hmm. And if this film had been an hour shorter, if the director had shown the ability to only pick the most interesting scenes and leave out the less interesting scenes, I might have given it a, a higher rating. And in fact, it's, it's sort of that ruined potential that in part really caused me to, to label so it. Angry about it, a it like is, that. You know, it is boring. It plays, it's first of all, is definitely part of the slow cinema movement that you and Mm -hmm. I both try to to avoid. And on top of that, just is way too long. And you could make a much more interesting film out of that by cutting an hour out of it. And uh, almost an hour at random. There are certain things that... uh, (laughs) Man... You are you're you're really you're really going to make me regret watching this anyway, or perhaps Albert Sarah will make me regret watching this anyway, and you are the Cassandra who uh, will gain power from being right ahead of time. So is this at the Chicago Festival? No, it's not. Um, but it, I suspect that it's the kind of thing that I will keep an eye out for anyway, just because of the, the like I say, the high concept is so compelling to me, despite as you say, it's not going to pay it off in any way, shape, um, or form. In its current form, it is boring. Yeah, it is okay. a boring film. Well, I will I will keep that in mind, but maybe I will maybe I will watch it. If I do watch it, I'll report back. No, of the films that you saw, the only one that's at the festival is of Good Report, which is a non-genre, but it's a sort of uh, again. Uh, it's definitely a crime flick. Yeah, it's definitely a crime flick. It's sort of a South African noir, which you know, quite frankly, uh, <laughs> there are a lot of African noir films on the list, which I guess makes sense since what you need for noir is low budgets and recent horrific trauma. <laughs> and that's what they've got in Africa in abundance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the whole original theme of classic film noir is informed by the trauma of World War II. Mm-hmm. And definitely South Africa has trauma to spare. Yes. And uh, that certainly infuses uh, that film. And that's interesting because it is so far away from the usual aesthetic of 
African cinema. And uh, the comparison I would draw is with Samuel Fuller in terms of being really exploitative and in your face and uh, telling a a true story in an angry way that is not necessarily in uh, absolute control of its sense of taste. And of course, Sam Fuller made some terrific noir. So uh, you're already uh, a leg up right there. Yeah, there's, I think there's an, a Cote d'Ivoirean noir and a Kenyan noir, and I don't even know how many noirs. There's a lot of African film, I, because that was their specialty, but I think a lot of the African directors are making noir films uh, for, you know, like I say, the reasons that we just said. Right, and it's part of a broader movement in African cinema to move away from these sort of pastoral mm-hmm. films that are uh, often aimed largely at a European audience right, yeah. uh, and towards something that... You didn't that was... wreck the continent so bad, how pretty. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And toward a more modern urban style that reflects the way people uh, live now in Africa, right. which is a uh, increasingly urban uh, and increasingly developed continent. So is there anything that we did not cover in the runover that you think is something that uh, Ken and Robin audiences need to listen to as opposed to go to robindlaws.blogspot.com and read about? Um, I, I think we've uh, pretty much covered everything and more so uh, i think we can consider this latest podcast trip to tiff over and done with This episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff is also sponsored by Matthew Rossi, the electronic author of Things That Never Were, Bottle Demon, and At Last, Atlantis. He covers the stuff we talk about on this podcast, or at least a goodly portion of it. He is, as Robin mentioned, an elliptonist. I ran across his essays on the internet when he used to have his own uh, website, and now I'm sure he's uh, other places on the internet, but where he especially is, is on Amazon, where you can get those three books for the bargain price of $3 a piece. And as Ken suggests, these are SI-style treatments of the various topics that we talk about on the show, or some of them, and they are eminently stealable, as Matthew himself points out and encourages. Yeah, uh, Rob McDougall uh, compares them to my suppressed transmission, saying that if I am James Brown or The Clash, Matthew Rossi is Paul Oakenfold. It's a longer form, more spirally, more unveily type uh, mode. His essays are usually several thousand words instead of the 2200 uh, three chords in a cloud of dust stuff that I did for suppressed transmission. But it's very much the same sort of style. So if you have been missing suppressed transmission and want something to read in between Ken writes about stuff, definitely Matthew Rossi is the place to go. It's steeped in the lore of his birthplace, Lovecraft's Rhode Island. He grew up drinking from the Skikchuate Reservoir, which is immortalized in Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, and was doubtlessly just mispronounced. <laughs> well, it, probably an alien meteor made you do that. As we mentioned, the price is a steal, three bucks a piece. I've got uh, all of them on my Kindle now, and I paid for them with my own money instead of getting them free to be a sponsor, which seems like a mistake on someone's part. But anyway, uh, and it will be available in other formats. Things that never were came out actually in uh, paper from, I want to say Monkey Brain Books, but it was it was from someone, and it's a lovely uh, physical artifact. If you want to uh, buy that in paper, that's also available. And if not, zip over to Amazon and check out all of these exciting books from Matthew Rossi. Welcome back to Ken and Robin Recycle Audio for the second in a two-part series mined from the Gumshoe Investigative Role-Playing Panel at Gen Con. 
at the beginning of the panel, it was sort of, I like to think that it was the people who'd already learned and played gumshoe and enjoyed it, had told all their friends, you should go check out this gumshoe thing. And so the wheel had turned and we were back where we were at the first How to Play Gumshoe panel with people who just sort of vaguely heard about it. But eventually, uh, the questions got more complex and the uh, late adopters of gumshoe started to be replaced by medium adopters. So uh, Robin and uh, Simon Rogers, our beloved uh, Pelgrane Press impresario, and I talk about pool refreshes, investigative spends, the neuropsychiatry of general abilities, and why it's always a bad idea to recruit Dracula as an intelligence asset. Here Simon talks about the duration between pool refreshes. I think, you know, if you've really planned an adventure and you've got an idea of how many points you, they might burn through, allowing for them burning through half of them for special benefits, then you've probably got a fairly clear idea. But really, as soon as you see that two players have got no points left, or they're trying to use astronomy for some reason, then you then go, right, I think we're going to call a break here, you can all refresh. Because it's about managing your points through the course of the game, so that you get little spotlights on your abilities, and that everybody gets a similar level of spotlight to the extent they want it. And at that point, um, usually at a natural break, the GM will say, OK, you can refresh all your investigative abilities. On average, depending on how much time your players like to waste, I find that <laughs> between three and four sessions is usually about as long as an adventure in the sense of until the next refresh okay. takes. And that also, because um, Trail of Cthulhu, for example, is, is based on a short story beat model, Ashen Stars and Mutant City Blues are based on the single episode serial model. Even uh, Night's Black Agents is based on the single act of a thriller movie, not so much an entire born uh, adventure in a single session or a single adventure. So the general sort of feel of that is that about a three to four session and then we can refresh. That feels natural. In theory, if we ever do a, you know, the, the, the Tarkovsky uh, gumshoe game, maybe you'll just be forced to play out until all of your points are gone. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I try to intimidate the ground. I'm so tired. <laughs> I think when, when more than three of them are whining is probably the best. Yeah. Yes. It's, 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 yes. Yeah. As, with, as with any game, once your players have started whining and throwing things, it's probably a good idea to back out slowly. But um, in my experience, uh, which is not, you know, not, not as deep as probably some people out here, but certainly has been... You know, over the years, uh, I, I, I say three to four sessions is about right for. Mm -hmm. for the, if you've gone four sessions and haven't done it, you need to ask yourself why haven't I done it yet? Mm -hmm. I, I'd say that's certainly a, a, an alarm bell right there. Here, Robin talks about managing investigative spends in Gumshoe. That right, that, that that's where the spends come in. So, for example, if you've got a, a scenario where you can get. Uh, the information in what's likely to be the first hour of the scenario, or you can get that information in what's likely to happen in the final hour of the scenario, and there are certain obvious benefits to having it sooner, you can say, well, here in this scene, it costs you a two-point spend to find the dossier, but at the end, it's just uh, you find the dossier. And so it's those point spends and the, the, uh, the special benefits, we call them, that, that give you that extra level of success on top. And so what that does is it leaves it in the player's hands to determine whether they want their character to be awesome early at the risk of maybe not being awesome later. And I find that you'd think that everyone would min-max immediately and just say, I'm hoarding all the clues in the first hour. But that almost never happens. Players are always thinking, yeah, but what if we meet an astronomer and I have to talk him out of something? 
And so they're always keeping a point or so back until that last hour when it becomes, you know, you or Shubnigarath are going to walk out of this room and <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is. And we know who the odds are on. <laughs> so you'd, you'd better talk to that astronomer now, pal. Uh, and, and so I, I find that um, letting the players determine their own comfort level and their own rhythm of how often they look, it makes for the scenario to be better and more immersive because they don't feel like they're fighting you to solve the mystery. They feel more like empowered detectives or investigators, which is what you want the game to be about. You don't want it to be the game about the poor schlub who missed a clue and was eaten. You want it to be a game about a daring occult investigator who uncovers fell horrors. Right. And, and you then can, maybe gets eaten. And then gets eaten, yeah. yeah. And, and you can even have gradations of success, even without invoking the span. So, for example, you can uh, set up your notes in your adventure so that, you know, if you talk to the maid, she will tell you who came in and out of the lobby. But if you talk to her in Spanish, she will feel more comfortable with you, and she will also reveal this other interesting but non-crucial bit of information. Yeah. And you can't set that up so that you have to be able to speak Spanish to the maid in, in order to get a clue that moves you forward, but something that just adds a little bit of color or uh, understanding, uh, you can make that dependent on some additional condition uh, of the way that you describe your, the character getting that information. Um, in, in, in Trail of Cthulhu, there's a credit rating, which is borrowed from Call of Cthulhu. And depending on the social class of the person you're talking to, if you've got a, a lower credit rating, the bartender will treat you like a, like a fellow working man, and he will give you good information about the socialist agitators. But if you're a rich guy, he's just going to say, yeah, they were in here, then they left, and he's not going to open up. And it's the same sort of thing. You can tailor it to the type of character asking the question just as much as you can to the, to the spends or not the spends. But the what that means is it feels more natural in the story. Um, the other thing is, is that Gumshoe gives out core clues. So these are the things that you never, ever have to pay for. There are also free clues that are not core clues, but your core clue will always move you ahead. So you could go through an entire Trail of Cthulhu adventure from A to B, find the big bad, and know nothing and be utterly destroyed. But if you've spoken to the right person, for example, you might find that the cultists have gone off duty at midnight, and you'll find out what the point of the ritual is. And all of those extra bits of information that explain the mystery as opposed to just move you forward are all things that you can tailor to what the, the players do. Uh, the other thing about Gumshoe is that it doesn't care how difficult a clue is. It can be uh, a matchbook with a, you know, a hotel room number in it. Or you can actually, if you want them to, try to, to solve a puzzle and they like solving puzzles, the clue can be, here's a puzzle for you to solve. And then you can feel, they make me feel that they've worked for something. Um, it just is simply totally neutral to, uh, to how hard a clue is to interpret. In this excerpt, we describe when players should and shouldn't know the difficulty numbers of general ability checks. Um, well, th that, th that's what makes them weenies for wanting that. Um, Usually people in hell want ice water, too. Yeah, because um, the whole point of having people spend is to create that moment of anxiety where you go, I have a resource, and our brains, there's a little bit in your, uh, one of your brain components is called the insula, and that's the part of your brain that's responsible for saying, the things that I have gathered already, I would like to hold on to, thank you very much. So if you give people a resource, they will naturally wish to conserve it. Um, and so you want that sense of anxiety where it's almost, if I just have a raw roll, first of all, I'm 50% likely to succeed. And I can add 
you know, if I had one point that increases it and I, I you know, and so there's the chance of failing even when you spend a bunch of points or a chance of uh, succeeding when you didn't need to spend the points. And it's that irresolvable question because there is really no right answer and the scenarios aren't built so that there's a right answer to you should have spent this here or that there. And the key to that is concealing the difficulties because if, as you suggest, uh, telling them what the difficulty is, then it just becomes an easy exercise in resource management without that horrible feeling of, I can never be 100% right all the time. Well, that's the feeling of being in a mysterious or difficult situation that that rule is meant to evoke. And some gumshoe games have a more liberal attitude towards when you can tell the players difficulty levels. Like if they're trying to jump over a wall, um, if they're nice black agents, badasses, they've jumped over walls yeah. like that in you know training at Airborne or SAS or whatever it is, Spetsnaz camp, and the wall was covered with spikes and had a guy shooting at them. And so they know how to jump over a wall, and you say, it's a difficulty three wall, and they spend yeah. to get over it, or they don't. But if they're fighting a big, roided-out Renfield, and he's got blood coming out of his mouth, they shouldn't know how easy he is to hit. It should be scary and weird that they have to deal with that guy. And and they might and you might want to try and urge that insula to sort of you know tuck her up and and um, uh, and cover its face uh, with its fists and, and so it's really about the tone that you want to develop not even in the game but even in the individual scene. Um, there's also uh, the opportunity there to use a special benefit spend from an investigative ability. If you say are confronted by a bear you might actually spend a point of outdoorsman to know how hard it is to do something to the bear uh, because you have the information. Right. Um, and there may well be a setting somewhere where you know, always know what the difficulty number is. It's a, definitely a setting-dependent thing. If you're trying to invoke an atmosphere of horror, you want uncertainty. If you're doing the Care Bear role-playing game, you know exactly how hard everything is and it'll be nice and you'll spend your points and you'll get what you want. And, and there are situations, too, where uh, you can allow the players to convince you to spend their uh, investigative points on general attempts, right? So that if you're being pursued by a bear, you can spend your zoology point as a fleeing point because you know, you know, important fleeing from bears facts. And finally, I ripped the grave dust strewn coffin lid off the upcoming Dracula dossier project. Okay, the um, products that uh, you're talking about are the Dracula Dossier and Dracula Unredacted. The Dracula Dossier is an a improvisational campaign after the mode of Armitage Files, in which the characters have got a dossier revealing clues to the current whereabouts of Dracula. The Dracula Unredacted is the real first draft of Stoker's novel, before the British Secret Service made him take out all the sources and methods. Because what actually happened in 1893 is that the British intelligence attempted to recruit Dracula as an asset. And that went very badly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, since then, every Not so the often... Not the worst recruitment attempt British, British intelligence, intelligence ever made. That, that went badly. Yeah. And since then, every so often, someone, some bright spark in MI6 gets the idea, they probably just did it wrong. We can, we can use Dracula to stop Hitler in Romania, or we can use Dracula to find the mole in our uh, intelligence. And in this case, it, Dracula's got the one with the mole, so they're trying to um, uh, wig his network. Uh, and then in 2011, it's like, Dracula hated the Turks. 
we hate the Muslims. I'll bet we could get along now. And so each time it's a terrible idea, each batch of analysts who are tasked with this has written their own notes into the margin of Stoker's real first draft as you know warnings to the guy who does this after me. And that's the document that they get. So Dracula Unredacted is the novel. With the annotations from the MI6, it becomes the core handout of the Dracula dossier, the titular Dracula dossier. And so therefore, the campaign part of the dossier will have the same sorts of things that were in the Armitage files, a bunch of non-player characters to encounter, and maybe they're turned by Dracula, maybe they're MI6 assets, maybe they're just innocent schmoes. Um, there's going to be a bunch of exotic locations like Borgo Pass and uh, Carfax and Seward's Asylum and the ancestral Godalming estate in Surrey Ring, which got taken over by the SOE in 1940 and has somehow never been given back to the family. You know, stuff like this that will have, you know, uh, that you'll be leading yourself to, or the players will be leading themselves to, by following whichever of the hints in the annotations they think are the most interesting or promising ones. And then you as the keeper, or the or rather the, the director, will be deciding probably as the players get more excited about a theory, which of the original members of the, of the hunting team Dracula had suborned, and they might still be alive as vampires. They'll be deciding, is Mina Murray still a vampire and alive? And if so, did she throw off Dracula's thrall, and is she independent? Is she working for MI6? Was the whole mission just an excuse to get Dracula's blood into Mina so that she could be an easily used asset? Yeah. And it, it, is she alive, but no longer a vampire? And if so, what's that all what's about? All that about? <laughs> and is she alive and now mad at MI6 also? And, and so there's a lot of different story possibilities. And whereas in the Armitage files, there, you had to dole out the letters and people had to read them to get the backstory. It's Dracula. Everyone knows the backstory. <laughs> what you're doing here is you're just following which part of Dracula you thought was interesting already. And <clears throat> the goal of the, of the dossier, the, 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 the role-playing section is to keep the director one scene or one act or one story ahead of the players as they say, well, obviously the Ceausescu regime was a puppet of Dracula's to lure MI6 into a giant, you know, uh, the crisscross operation. And you're like, yeah, okay, that's probably what happened. And so now you take out all the room, the old Securitate guys who are going to be sitting in terrible apartment houses in kludge smoking, you know, chain smoking galwazes. And now those guys are the guys who got the real clues. And the sort of foppish international travelers, you say, well, these guys don't know anything, and they become, you know, harmless red herrings. There will be a limited edition, which I will do as closely as possible in the original yellow jacket with the red writing in it, with as. as close as possible in appearance uh, possibly with the annotations in the margin but possibly not uh, because it in already includes the additional uh, text that was redacted mm -hmm. um, and that will be the, the player handout um, and a little bit like book hands we have a, a separate book which is supposedly a 1930s book and the players can just flick through it and go I'm going to go here I'm going to do this I'm going to investigate this so it's quite strongly player-led compared with some of our other games. Just part, Partly, I think Armitage Files was to show what else we could do with Gumshoe, that you can have a semi-improvisational um, version of Gumshoe. And then um, because much of my career has been uh, based on furiously and jealously uh, trying to catch up with Robin, <laughs> <laughs> I, I figured I, I had to do one myself. So yeah. that's why uh, Dracula Dossier is built as a improvisational story and also because there are at least five different narratives that you can build with no effort whatsoever out of the notion that Dracula is an espionage op gone wrong 
I mean, there, there is within the text of Stoker's novel, he wrote it in such haste and with such um, uh, Irish bravado um, that you, you can look at the text of the book and say, obviously Van Helsing is lying to everyone, or obviously Lucy Restenraw was never killed, or obviously Quincy Morris was a vampire all along, or any number of things. And you know, there, there, there's a cottage industry of Dracula scholarship that exists to argue about this stuff. And if I can just simply make a, a game supplement that says, girls, girls, you're all pretty, then that is going to be, I, I think, well, first of all, it's going to be huge fun. But second of all, I think it's going to be a really great way to let players sink their teeth, haha, into a uh, into the great vampire hunting story of all time. And that's the end of our recycled audio from this year's Gen Con panel. We venture once more into the alien big cat haunted precincts of the Elliptony Hut, and this time we're. Uh, this is sort of one of those segments that we have to cover because it transects with so many of our uh, interests and topics, and that is that uh, just before I left for the film festival in Oklahoma City, across from a restaurant, a concrete monument to Azazoth suddenly materialized uh, during the night, left by persons unknown. So this is an opportunity for Ken to tell us, first of all, of his spiritual homeland of Oklahoma, and then of what uh, an Azazoth cult might be up to there. Now, uh, Ken, when I think of, as according to your official history, uh, your origin place of Oklahoma, I think of uh, uh, bleakness, of hardness, I think of Texas without the positive attitude, and I think of such famous scions of Oklahoma as Pretty Boy Floyd, Chester Gould, Jim Thompson, and Gary Panter. Uh, tell us about Oklahoma and Oklahoma City from the point of view of someone who uh, was born and raised there. Oklahoma, as I like to say, is as an Oklahoman, it's why I am in such sympathy with Canadians. Because I, too, grew up across the border from the big, exciting, interesting place that everyone wanted to be. And so uh, all of those uh, bleaknesses and hard scrabbles that Robin aff affirms from his own Canadian soul are likewise deep within the Oklahoma uh, soul. The Okies, of course, uh, were famously dispossessed by the Dust Bowl and had to go to California and steal oranges to make a, a simple living. But by the time I grew up in Oklahoma City, it had gone through two oil booms and was ready for one that it would not immediately piss away, which uh, apparently happened with the most recent one, because the instant I left, all of the terrible Cantonese restaurants that were run by Vietnamese refugees became terrific Vietnamese restaurants, and I think that was sort of <laughs> the, um, uh, the, 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 the key that turned uh, Oklahoma City from Dallas without the interesting parts to an actually... Uh, vibrant and interesting place. It so, was so a great place. So it's a testament place. to the healing power of Café Suda. Exactly. It was always a good place to get really good Mexican food. And that was one of the things that I got out of living in Oklahoma City. The other, of course, being a uh, appreciation for tornadoes and wide open spaces and uh, the West and driving around very, very fast and all those other great American traditions, firing guns into and around the South Canadian River, stuff like that. 
So Oklahoma, very much, as you say, Texas without the attitude uh, type place. Oklahoma City, when I was there, was a large uh, suburb with tiny pockets of city in it, and it is now a little more city. Uh, it keeps showing up on all kinds of lists of you know, the 10 most dynamic uh, business climates in America or whatever the hell. And that's because, of course, of this giant gas boom that's going on. Yes. And and due to its room for improvement. <laughs> yes, uh, as, as well. When you when you start from Oklahoma, everything looks like up. Except, of course, we were surrounded by Arkansas and Kansas, so literally nothing looked like up except Texas. But anyway, so since I left there, as I say, Oklahoma City has accumulated its share of great restaurants and interesting art uh, things. They put up a new art museum while I was out of the city and came back and looked at it. And it's a very nice art museum. Um, and they have a art colony. And in the midst of that art colony is one of those restaurants, the Paseo Grill. And in the lawn of the Paseo Grill or nearby, someone or something, dun, 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 erected an enormous concrete trapezoid labeled in the year of our Lord 2012 Creer Pippi claimed this land for Azathoth, and that uh, began as a sort of uh, two, you know, slow news segment bit on Oklahoma local television, and then as Azathoth will, it attracted the, in the attention of the internet and blew up huge, and for a while, my Facebook and Twitter inboxes were besieged with people saying, what did you do, Ken, or words to that effect. <laughs> now, first of all, the, the plaque suggests that uh, someone has been sitting on a monument to Azazoth, or at least the plaque for it, for a number of months. Mm -hmm. Yes, or that, of course, it was dropped off in 2012, and as things subject to Azathoth were, it just took a while to wend its way through time, space, and dimension to wind up on the lawn of the Paseo Grill. There, there is, as I suspected, more to the story, uh, sadly, uh, because it would be lovely to just have it left there as an eternal mystery. Before we get to the mundane truth, or the seemingly mundane seeming truth, behind the trapezoid. I should mention that Oklahoma also has a Lovecraftian connection uh, prior to this from the short stories uh, The Curse of Yig and The Mound, which Lovecraft Ghost wrote for Zelia Bishop and set in her native Oklahoma because of his uh, approach that authors should write about the land they knew which apparently does not extend to having Rhode Island people ghostwrite it, because when I went <laughs> out to Binger, Oklahoma, on ostensible Department of Transportation business, when I briefly worked uh, for the Department of Transportation, the titular mound was not that impressive. And uh, Binger, while bleak, was more Dunwich bleak than uh, the mound bleak, sadly. But I'm sure that there is, uh, <laughs> there, there is probably now... Uh, the psychic space for a lovely binger con, binger con for people to have Lovecraft conventions at. Well, you call it the, the Yig Con because Yig -con. Uh, Curse of Yig is actually one of the better of his ghost written pieces. It's genuinely creepy. Yeah, especially if you've already got a snake thing going on. It's it's really good. I mean, it's it's got also a, a nice domestic quality to it that a lot of uh, Lovecraft doesn't, and I think he was not super comfortable in that space. But when he when he lets himself go and is aimed in the right direction, as opposed to say Medusa's Coil. Um, you get a you get a pretty good story out of it. Uh, Curse of Yig definitely a good thing, but sadly, um, the internet soon found out that Creer Pippi is not the name of a Kenyani uh, magus from beneath the Hollow Earth. It is a anagram for a, a local Oklahoma City sculptor named Eric Piper. And a brief nuzzling around on various Facebook pages and such uncovered the fact that uh, Eric Piper and his sort of colleague and cohort, J. David Osborne, who is a local publisher and writer, uh, basically built this and 
in a beautiful uh, comeuppance to people who say humans couldn't do this. It turns out humans with a pickup truck kind of can do this. They just drove <laughs> up and shoved it off the back of the tailgate of their pickup truck, and that is how a 300-pound piece of concrete w- w- winds up uh, embedded in the soil of the Paseo Grill. And they just did it uh, because that's what writers and artists do. Uh, Paseo Grill is, sits in Oklahoma City's Arts District, and if you are familiar with Arts Districts, that means that it is full of self-congratulatory idiots who uh, don't understand what art is. And these guys, I think, sort of wanted to remind them that art is not just uh, paintings of uh, lilies after Georgia O'Keeffe or cow skulls also after Georgia O'Keeffe or even cowboys after Frederick Remington. It is also weird obelisks that you can't explain. Right. It is uh, pranksmanship that reaches a, a global media audience. And if you want an obscure reference that the Internet is going to get, you could probably not do uh, any better than Azathoth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Azathoth... He's kind of an ideal choice because, first of all, it's not so obvious, right? It's 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 not you know you're you're not too on the nose with it. It's not Cthulhu. It's not even Yog Sothoth. It's it's Azathoth. It's one it's one of the Lovecrafts, but it's not one of the big ones uh, in terms of of pop culture presence. And also, it's sort of you know the 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 notion of critiquing an arts district with a monument to the god of idiot chaos is actually kind of neat. I mean, I just. I just liked the flavor of it. I liked the flavor of it before I knew that it was artists. I, my original theory was that it was someone who worked at a um, uh, monument carving business for a for a graveyard or a funeral home, made a made a misprint, and instead of just throwing the thing out, decided, well, why not? I'll finish it up because I'm a Lovecraft fan, and I'm gonna. I, I still knew about the fact that two guys with a pickup truck can pretty much do anything. That's another thing you learn in Oklahoma, um, and so uh, the. I, I I had sort of hoped that it was a repurposed gravestone, but the fact that it's a purpose-built plinth is still pretty great. So that, of course, is the cover story. What do you figure really happened? Well, I think what really happened is that Azathoth is working through Eric Piper and J. David Osborne, and that they are exactly in the spirit of uh, a Lovecraftian entity. They are engaging in a ritual action that they think they understand, but they do not. Lovecraft famously says that all human rituals are uh, sort of half-forgotten or cargo cult versions of the actual truths, of the actual sciences that underlie dimensionalities we can't even perceive. And I think human rituals uh, in terms of quasi-Dadaist uh, Lovecraft pranks certainly fall into that category. It maybe implies that it's a Nierlathotep project as opposed to an Azathoth project because of, he is uh, canonically the, the trickster, but I think that, uh, if you remember, Nilothotep is also, at one point, uh, surrounded by idiot flutists who prance around endlessly, just like Azathoth is, and the connection between Nilothotep and Azathoth perhaps is not as uh, explored as it might be. Nilothotep is the messenger, perhaps, of Azathoth, and that is how he worked his will. Um, the, the fact that it's in the Paseo Grill's front yard is, you know, I don't know what, the, what that means, because Paseo Grill, like many other good restaurants in Oklahoma City, post-dates my, my lengthy time there, but I'll bet that if you looked into it, you would find something about that geometry or, or that area that would be Nyarlathotepian. So you figure that uh, Nyarlathotep is just working as an agent for Azazoth in this case, or is uh, there something particularly... Is, is Oklahoma more of a Nyarlathotepian U.S. state or more of an Azazothian U.S. state? Before this happened, I would have said much more an Azathothian uh, U.S. state, that there was a definite sort of blasted bleakness, especially to western Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma is famously, uh, the western half of Oklahoma is the west, 
the southeastern quarter of Oklahoma is the south, and the northeastern quarter of Oklahoma is the Midwest. And there's a very strong sense of cross-culturalism in the sense that it's three, you know, white Anglo cultures. It's not, uh, uh, the, the dominant culture in Oklahoma is not Hispanic uh, yet, although uh, it may be with uh, the uh, continued influx of guys who want to work on gas fields. Um, but the uh, but the sort of the dominant uh, Anglo cultures of Oklahoma are engaged in a constant sort of swirl around, and that has sort of an Azathothian idiot blindness to it that I think is if, if, again before this happened I would have thought as, definitely Azathoth, but again you know now that I've left maybe it's more near Lothotepe. Uh Well, I guess this uh, answers for everyone the truth and the truth behind the truth of the monument to Azathoth. Though I think that we can uh, pronounce our explanation of this mysterious event, uh, demysteriousized, and therefore our podcast, uh, once again, at an end. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Engine Publishing. Matthew Rossi. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this golem offry going by clicking the donate button at kenofrobandtalkaboutstuff.com. Joining such illustrious listeners as Benjamin Hinnom, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, Robert Abrazado, and Andrew Cowie. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Downcast, or your podcast app of choice. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he is at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.